<clears throat> hey guys, this is the Think and Grow Rich podcast. My name is Bart Baggett. I am the co-host of Hack and Grow Rich podcast. I think I said Think Grow Rich. You know, you should think and you should grow rich, but this is the Hack and Grow Rich, and this is the show where you're going to learn shortcuts to cash flow, entrepreneurship, but more importantly, happiness along the journey. Now, my co-host is an amazing human being named Shaheen Shahan, and his life is documented in an upcoming book and podcast called Billion. It's available later this year, and it's, um, it's just an incredible life story. And the guest we have today has an equaling an amazing life story. So it's going to be one of the best episodes. So Shaheen, you're one of the most highly sought after Amazon seller consultants Dozens of your brands do millions of dollars a month, and you do it all through hacking. Welcome to your own show, buddy. <laughs> Great to have you on, Bart. And ladies and gentlemen, we've got Bart Baggett, the successful life coach and author of Success Secrets of the Rich and Happy, teaching people <clears throat> that it is not just important to be rich, but you need to be happy while you're doing it. And in fact, I would argue that the only way to be happy is to be rich. <laughs> well, we're going to ask our guest that same question. He's walked many, many miles in many guru's shoes, including his own. Um, you know, I, I, we usually chit-chat a little bit, but I guess I'm so excited about who we have on today because I think the stories alone could fill up six hours. Uh, and I know he's got a lot of articles written about him. Um, but our guest today, he's just commonly called Prince Stash. And that's probably because most of our Americans can't pronounce his entire name correctly because he's from European aristocracy. Um, but our next guest has literally been on the celebrity pages since he was discovered at the Cannes Film Festival in 1959. Now do the math on that. This guy has some wisdom to share. He's played with the most famous bands, including the Everly Brothers, the Platters. He's hung out with the Beatles, played on stage, and was literally part of that group in the 60s with the Rolling Stones. But we're not going to talk only about his celebrity status in the 60s and 70s. Um, but, you know, he is from a, a, an amazing family. His dad is a world-famous expressionist, surrealistic painter uh, known as Balthus. And, and, you know, Prince Stash like, paved his own way into the hippie cultures of the 60s. But that's not what we're talking about today. In the last 50 years... He, bought, he wrote a book called The Golden Game. He has a zest for life. He's, he's on a very spiritual path. And I think it's fair to say he's still traveling the world like he was in the 60s, spreading a unique, unique life perspective. So Prince Stash, welcome to the show, and thank you for being here. So you're going to need to unmute yourself. Yep, that, that's it. You can hear me? Yep, we can hear you just fine. Welcome. Sure. I, how was that introduction? Did I cover everything you've done in the last two decades? Well, it's hard to do, but you did you you did a chunk of it. Let's put it this way. You you were most famous <laughs> in your biographies for being a leader in this amazing what would have been called a hippie culture in the '60s, and I don't think most people realizing, especially those listening under forty, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles were rebels. You were an outcast. You were a hippie. You got arrested for no reason. You did drugs. These things were completely different in 2021. What drew you to that entire cultural and music back in the 60s? And how does this still play a role in your life? Well, it, I was, um, I really was 
plucked out of high school by um, persuaded and thank God my mother approved and I got out of the drudgery uh, on Via Veneto in Rome actually before the Gucan uh, thing with the uh, Lucchino Visconti's assistant who was called Jerry Makchukovsky and and he persuaded my mother to let me do a screen test for Vida's films. Little did I know that, you know, there was sort of stars in the air, but I was a very pretty boy and there was a lot of uh, heavy uh, secondary intentions. Let's just put it this way, that it was, I know exactly what it's like to be a beautiful young girl that people lost after because I was plunged in a world that my background had uh, made slightly difficult to know how to deal with, but I managed to navigate these shark-infested waters successfully and had fun doing it. And therefore, I was uh, involved in the sort of the Dolce Vita and the film world and the whole thing, uh, hanging out uh, as a teenager at Alain Delon's uh, house uh, near near Atanco, near Paris, and uh, uh, and so on and so forth, dancing with Romy Schneider and people like you know, having an, uh, the time of my life. Um, I went with Bellini to the 13th Cannes Film Festival in 1960, actually, when uh, the Dolce Vita won the Palme d'Or. And uh, as a result of that, I went to Hollywood. I went to New York first on the, the very first time I, I set foot in America in 1960. In the, I arrived in Hollywood with a letter of introduction to Sammy Goldwyn Jr., uh, who then ran the, the Goldwyn Studios. And uh, I was immediately taken in and had a very privileged position, was able to do a whole host of incredible things. And including during that year, 1963, bluffing my way into a, a script writing job at Columbia, which uh, at Columbia Studios, which then had premises on Gower Street in Hollywood. And uh, during the course of this assignment for a man called a winning director called Dennis Sanders, uh, I uh, discovered we actually the occupant of the next office and I both discovered and were curious about one another. So we both unlocked at the same time the dividing wooden panels that was dividing our offices. And it was John Cassavetes and John Cassavetes came, but we would spend our time, right, we would do a bit of work and then we would sit cross-legged on the carpet and uh, sort of uh, build castles in Spain as to what kind of films we wanted to make and, and see and so on and so forth. It was a, an amazing time. However, when I came back, this is to, to uh, draw the picture. When I came back to Europe, I found myself in Paris 
at quite a loose end in that I couldn't find an interesting job in the industry or in theater. And I had a great friend who was a legendary rock star, was called Vince Taylor. And he said, well, you've always been in the music and you, we've been friends for a long time. Why don't you join my band? That's how it started. I played with Vince Taylor on this incredibly uh, amazing tour in 65, in early 65, which was trailblazing in so many ways. In fact, I just discovered a couple of days ago that I'm in a dictionary of extraordinary exotic people who visited Torrey <laughs> you know, and and it was because, you know, I was such, I had such unusual looks and long hair and earrings and the black glove and the whole thing and was photographed and uh, they, they found the whole package irresistible, so got a lot of press in those days. Then we returned from this tour uh, to headline to headline in with the Rolling Stones at the at the Paris Olympia during a series of gigs uh, that took place over the Easter weekend of 1965. That's when I uh, and to to tell we there were maybe ten or fifteen acts on the bill playing maybe one song. There was a magician. There was a whole, whole thing. Uh, then we did our full set, which was all of 20 minutes. And uh, then there was an intermission and the stones came on. Hold this on, is hold, the on hold on, hold on. You, you were a new artist. You had just no. entered into the scene and you got invited to, to open for the fucking Rolling Stones? We didn't open for them. We were fighting them. We were on a, oh. in a battle of the bands. And oh. Vince Taylor was a super guy. We, well, it wasn't a new artist. Vince Taylor is a massive, was a massive uh, uh, star when, when the Rolling Stones were, were starting. And uh, in fact, he wrote us, he wrote probably most people don't, don't realize, but two facts about Vince Taylor, apart from his amazing, he was the craziest uh, motherfucker you could possibly imagine. And uh, uh, Vince Taylor wrote brand new Cadillac, which uh, The Clash on their London is Calling album covered and uh, countless other bands. And he was also the inspiration for David Bowie's De uh, Ziggy Stardust. Oh, wow. And so I was in the band and my influence in the band was that it made it, he went from being a sort of Gene Vincent Elver, you know, a sexier Gene Vincent, uh, you know, in black leather uh, uh, clothes and so on to being a more a new romantic type of person. And I, I was, uh, his million dollar gimmick, as he said, with glitter and long hair and barefoot on stage and unbelievable and the girls will think. Yeah. So were you were you um back in those days before you you were you were how old in 1965, 1966 when your first album 22. came? Twenty-two. You were twenty-two. 24. Before yeah. that, did you come? I know I know your dad, his art 
sells for millions and millions of dollars. And Bart, you know, uh, is very familiar with him. I've just got a cursory understanding, but I know he's got art at the MoMA, at the London Museum, you know, before his passing. Metropolitan, he, yeah. Yeah, at the Metropolitan. And, you know, his stuff goes for millions and millions of dollars now. Did you come from a family of means? Were you wealthy growing up? Did you go to private boarding schools and were always uh, well looked after? Yes, I would say yes. I, I had very much a sort of, I lived what resembled a 19th, if not an 18th century education and um, lived in these very grand estates and beautiful houses with extraordinary trappings, etc. cetera. Um, money was never discussed really. Uh, in fact, it was considered terrible manners to talk about money, uh, but, um, I did go, and the great thing was I was such a misfit that I didn't do very well at, at school and got into, uh, and, as the, and I had a skiing accident after which I missed a whole term. And as a result of that, I was sent to a, to a tutor in England, it was a marvelous man called, a writer called Eric Otto Sipman, and he, was a real renegade who'd written confessions of a nihilist, uh, Waterloo on Water Street. He'd been in the film business. He'd been uh, the lover of Tallulah Bankhead, etc. And he'd absconded into uh, into the West part, into the wildest part of the West Country in England, in Devonshire, on the edge of Dartmoor uh, to a ramshackle Victorian house that they were renting. And therefore, the tuition that he got from my parents was invaluable to his living. And he said, listen, I'm quite unqualified to teach you the, the curriculum, although I, I pretended that I could. But if you don't blow the whistle on me, I'll give you an education that you will uh, you will know for the rest of your life. And so it was very much the classics and uh, Greek and Latin and uh, literature and things like that in both uh, English, French, Latin, etc. And so it was a fantastic way. And I had lessons in the morning, rode my horses uh, in the afternoons, worked on a nearby farm, got into rock and roll. <laughs> very early because there were some cute uh, girls from a very rich family who had the only television set in probably in the whole of West Country. How, how old were you at this point? At that time. How old were oh, you at I this was, point? I uh, was 14. And what year was this? And, and so there was this, there was this, uh, there was this, uh, this entire uh, this show called on Saturdays called Six Five Special, and I I literally rode my horse through the snow and everything because the roads were impractical to never miss this show ever on Saturday, and it was a rock and roll show, and rock and roll in those days was like such a sort of marginal uh, thing, you know, <laughs> it was it was very frowned upon, you know, because there'd been riots and all this kind of thing. It was before Elvis went into the army. 
And uh, we're talking late 1950s. We're talking late 1950s. We're talking about 1957, 56, 57, that kind of thing. Were you you getting laid as a teenager because you were just (laughs) super rich and like hanging out in these big houses and there were like beautiful young ladies around? You were just this like strapping young man. Laid, laid was very difficult, but I did manage uh, manage it relatively early with a very beautiful neighbor, uh, the daughter of a uh, of a, a neighbor who was um, who was a great alluring beauty and very much sought after. And she decided that uh, after I came back from Rome, I mean, probably in the uh, early. It was by that time, it was early 1960s, she decided that if um, I hadn't been late before, she wanted to be the first one to to initiate me into the droids of sex, which, and uh, I was an idiot at first because I tried to brag and she said, oh, in that case, wait a minute, if you're saying you've already done it, (laughs) no dice. So I had to break down in tears and sort of <laughs> say, say, no, I'm lying and all that. She said, who's to believe what now? And so on. And and then it and then it happened. And it was the most marvelous poetical experience, obviously. Because wow. it wasn't, you know, the, the the usual dreadful, sordid thing that many young men in those days experience. Let you me may, ask you, you a question about, about men in general. Um, it has been said that the only reason we do everything we do, whether make money, drive cool cars, is, is, is to get the attraction of women. Obviously, that's different if you're gay. But since you were 14, you've been good looking and you've had this. And I've read articles where you're posing with naked playmates and you've dated the top models from the 60s and 70s and movie stars. So you've obviously been highly motivated and very successful with women. Of all the famous people you know, do you think that's still the motivation or is at some point like you, the spiritual path becomes more important than the validation and the pretty girls. Well, uh, in those days, I used, um, well, Keith Richards accuses me in his book of um, having been this uh, mystical figure all in the service of a leg over, he says. But (laughs) it's not true because I never, ever, I never, ever, talked uh, in esoteric terms to girls uh, because it it bored me stiff to talk about matters that people didn't understand to other people and to girls. I I had learned how to do things. I had very, very good teachers, you know, as a teenager, I fell in love with the wrong ones uh, who were in love with older people, etc. I uh, rejected stupidly uh, the advances of somebody as beautiful as Françoise d'Orléac, who was Catherine Deneuve's um, older sister, who was incredibly beautiful movie star, who was tragically killed in a car crash. Uh, but then I learned, and when I read Steppenwolf by Hermann Hesse, there's a wish you can have uh, in the book, which is all the girls are mine. 
So at a very early age, I decided that's it, all the girls are mine. And indeed they were from that moment on. And it was the motivation. You know, I always quote uh, Lord Byron's verse in Don Juan, which says, I love the sex and sometimes wouldst the tyrant's wish reverse that mankind had but one neck which he with one fell stroke might pierce. My wish is quite as wide, but much more tender on the whole than fierce, that womankind had but one rosy mouth to kiss them all at once from north to south. And that was my uh, motto for the, the longest time. Obviously, in, um, um, you know, there comes a certain time in your late 70s, which I'm now uh, entering, um, in a few months I'll be 79, so um, oh, wow. the, um, the main thing then is, wait a minute, this, there's, you know, you do, oddly enough, I get a lot of uh, strange uh, advances from delectable young things and I sort of tend to make excuses because uh, you know you get into a lot of uh, difficulties uh, if you succumb to the, those type of temptations. There is in fact a very good novelette by Aldous Huxley called After the Fireworks where a famous writer <laughs> is uh, has a beautiful young girl leaving her fiance to be with him and she runs him around uh, so ragged that he engineers for her fiance to come and take her back i very heartily recommend reading this tale i, I love and, that uh, so i'm about, so let's uh, let's uh let's take a look i want to share something with you guys can you guys see my screen now let me know when it's We can see the screen. You can see the screen, okay? It's black at the moment. Yeah, that's okay. So we are getting ready yep. to play. And let's get into shot. So who is this guy right oh, here? Yeah. So, so I, we're going to watch this. So this is obviously a video from the 1960s. There you are moving in. Looks yep. like to the back of a police car with some very official looking men in black type situation there. Very, very dragnet. Very drag, very dragnet, yeah. right? So tell us what was going on there in that video. Okay. Um, Brian Jones, I was meant to do a film in Hollywood with. Sorry. Okay, go ahead. One more time, please. I was meant. Uh, in those, I, I was staying with Brian Jones um, of the Rolling Stones, who was in fact the, the key, uh, the linchpin uh, to the architect of a lot of the, he made those early hits like Painted Black and Lady Jane and Ruby Tuesday, absolutely immortal songs due to his multi-instrumentalist skills and his genius, and we had become friends since that time I, I just told you about in Paris, 
he was the one who came forward and uh, we shook hands and I took him, I took him and all the girls. And uh, in fact, I was with Anita Pallenberg at that time, who was to be the love of his life eventually. And um, I took him around. So we were very close friends. And, and in 67, he invited me to stay with him on my way to Hollywood. Then he asked me to defer my plans and to go with him to the Cannes Film Festival, hoping that I could help him reclaim her affections and woo her away from his bandmate, Keith Richards, with whom she absconded. He said, do you think I have a chance of getting her back? I said, well, I don't see why not. We can, could try. And so he demanded that I go to Cannes with him because he'd done the music of a director called Volker Schlendorf's uh, uh, a film, a German movie, uh, whose English title was A Degree of Murder, which starred Anita Pallenberg. And Volker Schlendorf is, a, is an extraordinary director. He did the tin drum, among other things, and so on. Anyway. Uh, they said, look, please come, because if you don't come, he's not going to come, and so on. So finally, reluctantly, I deferred my departure, went with him to Cannes. Following uh, Cannes, we went to Paris together, uh, and then uh, returned to London. Uh, during, and the night that preceded what you, the clip you've just seen. Uh, the, when we awoke late in the morning and the papers were delivered to us, the English papers, uh, Mick and Keith were on all the front pages of everything because they were being tried at Chichester on another outrageous bust with a few uh, it was completely trumped up charges because the establishment was keen to decapitate the Rolling Stones. That morning, the phone rang off the hook with literally 30, 40 phone calls from the press asking, have you been busted? And we said, no, 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 what the hell are you talking about? And they said, and then we began to suspect that perhaps the police had tried to come and that they, we, had, we hadn't woken up. And, uh, but there was such a press type thing that we never thought of anybody else coming to, to you know, the whole thing was too absurd to consider. And uh, we never thought of looking around to see, we knew that we had no drugs that particular day, but we hadn't suspected that there might be planted material. And um, so the police managed through a stratagem to gain entry because we were awaiting um, a man called Robert Fraser's servant was coming to clean up that flat and I buzzed him in and when I went to open the door it was in fact what I at first glance took to be a pack of journalists but it was the cops armed with a search warrant and uh, in short order they, they unearthed uh, a 
ridiculous looking Moroccan wallet under Brian Jones's uh, bed. And uh, we, none of us recognized uh, having ever seen that before. So it was obviously very sus suspect. Then they combed the, the, the entire, this entire huge apartment on Portfield Road, now demolished uh, the whole building, the whole neighborhood is completely transformed. But be that as it may, uh, the, uh, the, all, the only thing they found was an empty, very small vial about this size. And by holding it in the light, you could see a, a crystal or two. But even the, the leading detective said, oh, I'm not going to charge you for that anymore. Uh, what could be in there? You know, we said, they said, oh, I wouldn't like to know what's been in there. And we said, what? And he said, cocaine. We went, oh, no, you know. And he said, well, I'm not going to charge you for that because uh, thousands of a grain. And we thought, oh, good. Well, still, we were both charged with cocaine possession. And then a moldy bottle of old methadrine left by uh, Anita Pallenberg in an old trunk, which not even the most desperate junkie could have used. Anyway, to make an extremely long story short, due to the um, establishment's desire to decapitate the Rolling Stones perceived at that time incredibly as a menace to society, uh, they had the police to document the raid had even told, they had told the press and they told the TV, what you saw, what we just saw, was a clip from the television crew installed across the road, which, and that clip of us being taken to Chelsea police station, we were later on released, you know, the whole thing was absurd. There were hundreds of reporters and, and uh, the whole thing we couldn't, the police themselves suggested that we ha had the rules and the chauffeur come to the front while we, absconded through the back door of the police station into a black cab that took us to the Hilton, London Hilton. And we ended up in uh, Alan Klein's penthouse suite where we saw it, what you've just shown was on the television on the six o'clock news. And did you get out of jail so, finally? You know, the whole thing. Sorry? Did you get out of jail? Did you Did the charges get dropped? What happened at the end? Oh, that, uh, that was a long song and dance over. Uh, it took um, three uh, court appearances. Well, there was two uh, initial court appearances. And the third one was in when I arrived uh, at the third one, which was the trial by jury on October the 30th. They said, we are, they are dropping the charges against you. So I rushed to Brian's size and I said, we've won the case. You've got to plead. And he said, I'm pleading guilty. I said, are you completely insane? This is absurd. Don't do that. And uh, we are not guilty of any of those charges and we can win and get immense amount of compensation. And, but he wouldn't, he'd been brainwashed by his legal team who considered him guilty from the beginning. And he had a weird 
sense that he was atoning somehow. Uh, and and stupidly he ple he pleaded guilty, and that was the that was the first step towards the grave for Brian Jones, who was then persecuted endlessly, took refuge into prescription drugs and so on. And that less than uh, two years later, he was in his grave. Wow. So, so, okay. So I know Bart's got some questions too. I want to get through one important one. So the title of our show, and I know guys, uh, for all you listeners and viewers watching this, we've gone a little bit off topic here. Uh, generally the topic of our show is hack and grow rich. And so we talk about that. And there's a reason why we have you on. And I think that you are a, a fascinating human being who's lived a lot of life and that you at this stage in your life, you know, almost approaching 80, have a lot of wisdom to share. And I get this a lot from this particular question that I'm going to ask you. I get this a lot from young people who are kind of finding their way into the world now and are seemingly lost in an ocean of uh, sound and noise and, and they, they can't really figure out their way to success. So you came from pretty, um, you know, wealthy means you came from a, a life of, uh, luxury in, in general, but then you managed to get your way into a world of music and fame, which those two things, just because you have money doesn't mean that you will connect with people who are at the highest echelons in the world. So now you, as, as approaching your 80th birthday, looking at perhaps some younger people who are our viewers and listeners, perhaps you know there's uh, a young person out there who wants to become a, a musician or record producer or an artist, right? And they maybe they're starting with less than what you had. How did you do it? Because you hacked something. You did something unusual that endeared you into a universe of these top players. I mean, you you were friends with Sid Barrett, you know, one of the founding members of Pink Floyd. You were friends with Mick Jagger and Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones and Vince and and all these great people were attracted to something you had and something you did. So if somebody wants to learn your formula, if they come to you and they say, oh, wise master Prince Stash, educate me, teach me how I can become like you or become a better version of myself and have this access, have this, this type of success in life, how would you recommend that they do that? Like, what are some practical tips that you can offer? The, the the practical the it's very difficult to give any kind of practical tips because you're looking you're you're looking at things that happened over 50 years ago and the conditions were so radically different you know uh, they, there was no internet no cell phones no no social media of any kind and uh, the things one did and didn't do, uh, you know, there was a sort of brotherhood of people who were uh, mavericks of society, if you will, and people who were elected to, to be uh, long-haired artists were persecuted for the way they looked. We blazed an amazing trail for, for uh, 
the future, you know, people with green hair and piercings and the rest of it. I guarantee you that, uh, you know, none of that would have been uh, socially acceptable if we hadn't fought for those rights. It was, you know, it, there, it, there's a sort of, the 60s are viewed uh, through rose-tinted glasses. Yes, there was free love. Yes, there was this and that. But, and, uh, but it was not at the expense of having uh, the establishment forever picking on you in your daily uh, displacement. People would challenge you at customs, investigate uh, uh, your bona fides, etc. They would constantly uh, uh, stop you in a car and so on and so forth. So, you know, um, I became friends with the, with the close friends with the Beatles because in the aftermath of that particular arrest, you know, uh, Paul McCartney called me and said, uh, I'm sending a car, I'm, I'm sending a car. Uh, you, you're coming to live at my house and if they want to arrest you again, they'll have to take me as well. So there was this sort of solidarity and this, uh, I was taken uh, under the Beatles' wings and participated in sessions with them, etc., due to the peculiar circumstances that happened. Um, it was, in a way, it's the, it's fate that, you know, these things happened. Uh, I don't think you can say, well, there's a, there's a way to, to, to do this, you know. Because at every step, um, at every step of the way, there's always a fork in the roads. You take the right uh, uh, path or the left path, and you're going to have different outcomes. Um, how would you advise somebody, a creative, um, a creator, content creator today? Um, I think the only thing that in essence, you have to say to people, be yourself, make it your own. And this was imparted to me by no less a personage, very much maligned, but a great musical genius was Ike Turner. You know, uh, and uh, Ike Turner told me, said, he said, uh, can you play guitar on this? I said, no, oh, I can't because... You know, I made all sorts of stupid excuses that I had these friends like Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton and et cetera, et cetera, and they were better. And when I play, learned to play guitar, Mick Jagger get, got on better than me, et cetera. He said, nonsense, you've got to abandon all that and make it your own. And that's how I developed being able to play. All those instruments was from this... And I would impart the same thing to any content creator. Never heed somebody else's opinion of your work. Uh, whatever it is that you hold dear and that you're doing in this creative matters, you've got to stick to your guns and make it your own, whether it's commercial or not. My father never painted in the abstract medium he remained exactly on the course that he'd set 
and he wasn't always successful. I mean, in in commercial terms, but suddenly the the wind filled his sails, and and he became immensely successful and and sought after. But he never wanted to do that. Do you still have a collection of your father's works? I do. In fact, in fact, due to my advancing age and due to estate planning, um, Sandy, uh, Christie's is organizing in October in Paris a sale of uh, a great part of my collection, apart from some personal items, because, um, you know, it's difficulties for my heirs. Otherwise, if anything happens to me and, and the main thing, I'm fine right now, but at my age, you have to expect that you might not wake up in the morning, you know, one day. And it's fine. You know, it's totally cool. But you need to have certain things in place that will make life for uh, one's heirs a little better. You have kids? I have one son. And what's he do? He's a professional U.S. Marine. Oh, wow. Dangerous, dangerous yeah. hero work. And when people before you say, oh, how is it possible in your artistic family? Well, on my mother's side, uh, my grandfather was uh, and came from a long line of warlords and, and people who had their own private armies and fought in the service of every crown and accumulated titles and everything from all over and a fortune from all these uh, uh, all these uh, mercenary activities but my grandfather was that uh just uh, in world war one was the head of helvetic intelligence uh the intelligence bureau in 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 switzerland and he'd been he was uh, educated at heidelberg university was very much a von stroheim uh, type that the type that von stroheim would have portrayed in these type of films with a dueling scar and everything. And he was a high-ranking officer. So there is a tradition in part of uh, my maternal uh, family uh, of that sort of thing. I have a, a question about the spiritual path. Uh, you and I have something in common. We've spent years in India and, and have many, many friends there. But you mentioned in one of the interviews that one of the only people you consider a guru, because you've had hundreds of them, is Sadhguru of the Isha Foundation. As you get closer to the end of, of this journey, does that help with you understanding the, the reincarnation or the past lives or spiritual races? Like, what did you learn from your India experiences that we could take away from? Well, first of all, you know, I was fortunate. I went to I went to India. I turned uh, I turned down doing a major tour with a band. I was the lead singer in called the Rakes, and uh, with an RCA contract and the whole thing, because I felt the need, and it was inspired, I must say, by these transcendent psychedelic journeys, and I was compelled. Uh, to follow, uh, to use the title of a book that had a lot to do with it, uh, Lama Govinda's uh, Way of the White Clouds. And uh, I wanted to go to India and I wrote to um, uh, 
spiritual master called uh, Maharaj Charan Singh in the Punjab at Beas, and he said, come to me immediately. And in fact, in those days, you didn't have to spend a dime on these type of things. They didn't sell programs. They didn't do you. you in fact, you were invited to stay in, the, in, in considerable comfort if you were a long distance traveler and you'd come over land and so on and had made the effort to be there. They, they, uh, you could make a donation, at the, but it wasn't. Uh, requested by any stretch of the imagination. And I wanted to, while I was in India, I and following that particular thing, I wanted to uh, go on, I found a book in the library at this, uh, at this place called The Pilgrim's Guide, which wasn't for foreigners. It was just written in partly in Hindi and in, in English, because, you know, it's English being the linga franca in, in a place with so many idioms. Uh, and I read of a man who led yogi caravans into Tibet in a place in the Himalayan foothills called Nainital. So I directed my steps towards that place. And when I arrived, unfortunately, and I wanted to, I had planned it, the whole thing that I would go without any kind of document, darkened skin, a sort of Sir Richard Burton, you know, type of adventure, and, uh, and would be a deaf mute pilgrim. And, uh, you know, and join this yogi caravan. But the man who was organizing the whole thing died just before I got there. And when I got there, they broke it very gently. Unfortunately, Swamiji uh, 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 has departed this plane of existence. And I was at a loose end. And I remembered that somebody had said that in uh, another uh, place called Almora, not too far from there as the crow flies, but very far in the Himalayas, was the um, a Kazal Devi Ashram where Lama Govinda dwelt. And since Lama Govinda had been such an important uh, uh, influence in my life, I journeyed there. And uh, most of the journey from Almora Bazaar was then on foot for many Himalayan miles. And uh, I had to wait to gain, uh, to, to be able to ring the door because they didn't want any callers before sundown and so on. And um, when I went there, I introduced myself and he said, uh, oh, I know exactly who you are. And he sort of swiveled on his heel, picked up a book, you know, in one flawless movement and opened it. And it was a book of Rilke, Rainer Marie Rilke's correspondence. And he opened it and to a letter from uh, Rilke to André Gide, where he mentioned the family. And he goes, so Lana Govinda looks at me and he says, the whole are right. And I said, yes. And uh, he had it right there, the whole reference. And I became uh, his special chela, special student in uh, uh, the esoteric Tibetology, as it were. And from then, um, from all the, the, the 
the weeks and months that ensued until my return to Europe, uh, I, I was was uh, a way through all this exotic uh, Tibetan and Hindu yogi type of uh, uh, teachings to uh, turn back towards uh, uh, Western esotericism and towards a childhood and early uh, adolescence love of mine, which was alchemy. And I took, I took uh, doing the uh, several projects uh, from, that's a whole long uh, story of how this came about. But I was then invited by Thames and Hudson to do a book in their art and imagination uh, series on alchemy. And I worked on it, oddly enough, I bypassed doing a, a tour as a percussionist for the Rolling Stones, because I felt if I go on that one, I'll never finish this book. And, uh, and indeed, it was uh, a, a useful thing that it came out in 73. And uh, the French version of it, which I rewrote in French uh, in 74, uh, both books were very, very successful. Amazing. And then they asked me to another, I, I did another couple of projects for them. So and the, 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 yeah. Yeah, let me ask you this. So we're going to do three rapid fire questions. And I think, I think that that's, that's super amazing. I mean, Im imagine guys, if you are at a place where you have a higher calling that, the Rolling Stones, the fucking Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger is on the other line with his British accent asking you to come be the drummer. And you're like, nah, I think I want to go work on my book, right? <laughs> that's that's That takes discipline, right? That takes balls. And you, my friend, have balls. So three rapid fire questions as we wrap this up at the end of this episode. So are you ready, Prince Stash? I am indeed. Question number one, your favorite song of all time. Oh, that's a hard one. Uh, White a shade of pale. That's a really Broke good song. That's a really good song. Well, Question number two: Number of women you've slept with between 1959 and now? Question mark. It. it I gave up counting after a thousand or so. A thousand. Okay, he's eighty. The guy's eighty years old almost. So, not more than a thousand. I have question three. Go ahead, Bart. Is it true that you passed on the lead role in the Monkeys TV show because you hated the script? The script was so bad. I mean, they had Bob Rafelson and Bird Snyder had said it would be like Hard Day's Night every week, and the pilot script was so paltry by the time they brought it to me at this mansion we had on St. Ives Drive in Hollywood, that I said, "Come, are you serious? I don't want to do this. Plus, it, you know, one was so young. At the, I was still 22. And I thought the contract you had to sign was, you know, and I thought this thing will never get on the air and, and I'll be entangled in this thing. And it was, uh, it just was, 
oh, it was so, such garbage. This, this so that pilot, is true. You know? <laughs> so, guys, I want to bring bring it back to this as we, we close out. And, you know, Prince, we're going to give you the last few words. So whatever you want to share with the audience. But what I want to say is this is a person, a human being who's lived a life of meaning. And that has value. But most importantly, look at the person that we're talking to here. And this is one of the things I admire most about you. And I see this in Bart too. Um, but Prince, you know, you being our guest today is that you just don't give a fuck. And I think that is your secret. I think that is what endeared you to the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. They just look at you, you don't give a fuck. You don't want anything from anybody. You are going to be you and be authentic like you were teaching us and do what you're going to do. And there is something incredibly attractive about that to people. There's something incredibly magnetic about that type of, of energy where you just don't give a fuck. It doesn't fucking matter. And now just looking at you, aside from sure, you've got a lot of art, you came from, you know, a family of means, you've got money or, or whatever. You have something that a lot of people strive for. That means more than the money and the material things. You get to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want. And you've achieved a point in your life where you have that freedom. And that's what we teach here on Hack and Grow Rich. For anybody who's interested listening to this, guys, hit us up uh, in the comments below. Make sure to subscribe to this channel, the Hack and Grow Rich channel, and my other podcast, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. If any of you guys are interested in selling on e-commerce, check out fbasellercourse.com. And if you want a free $200 one-hour course, on how to sell on Amazon, absolutely free. Reach out to me directly by email. I'll share the email in the show notes. And I would be happy to share that with you guys for free. Use code Prince Stash. And Bart, if people want to get a hold of you and become rich and happy or happy and rich, what is the way they could do that? Or, or richer or happier or both. Um, hit me up on Instagram at Bart Baggett. And then if you want one of my latest books, uh, they're free for, my, for our listeners, getbartsbook.com. You can go to Amazon and buy them, of course. But I really think that a book is sort of a distillation of years and years of wisdom. So if you have a chance to go download that, the audio book will be coming out soon, getbartsbook.com. And thanks, Shaheen. This has been a great guest. I want to kick it back to Prince Stash. You've been one of my most fascinating guests. Is there any final words of wisdom you can leave us uh, as you've lived 78 years on this planet? Um, words of wisdom. It is very important to know that uh, you can reach a completely different level, which I've termed the absolute elsewhereness of being, which is to link up with the divine. Note that I haven't said God, because uh, that's a very misleading word. I've said the divine. And the divine is an infinite dimension, which so surpasses anything uh, in, the, in the temporary world that anything resembling not happiness, I, happiness, it's difficult to be happy in a world where people are unhappy, but certainly joyful bliss. You can, you can attain this bliss by tuning into this other dimension of yourself. 
And what other keywords to that? You've got to be ego-free, not ego-less. On the contrary, you can have, and I have a, a particularly good superego, but uh, you need to be ego-free. That's a mask I put on. And, you know, whatever it is, whatever the, the, the appellation, the playboy, the whole thing, all these are masks. The one thing is this ego freedom to reach beyond. Into, and where is it? It's not out there. It's within. And everything is within oneself. And the way, the way most misleading paths are those that where one is looking outwardly for things. If one concentrates within, one will obtain mastery of the outside world. Because as Lama Govinda quite well put it, when I asked him, what is the outside? And he said, the outside is the inside veiled in mystery, which is a very beautiful and poetical way to put it and think about it. I love that. The outside is the inside veiled in mystery. All right, guys. Thank yes. you so much for listening in. We are now at our time. Bart, thank you so much. Prince Stash, honored to have you on, my friend. And hopefully we can have you on again to share some of your great wisdom and insane stories of a life well lived. Thank you, everybody. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate uh, being able to, to talk about these matters that are meaningful.